Shalom and welcome to Shomer Mitzvot, Torah Observant, a series on practical messianic living and apologetics. I'm the author, Torah teacher Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. Torah observance is a matter of the heart. It always has been and always will be. The Torah proper instructed the people of Israel to love Adonai your God with all your heart, with all your being, and with all your resources. This is where Shomer Mitzvot begins, by loving Hashem and accepting Him on His terms. By this, I mean accepting His means of covenant obedience. For today, this means acceptance of Yeshua, His only Son, for Jew and non-Jew alike. Well, shalom, everyone. Welcome to Exegeting Galatians, a Messianic Jewish commentary. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. I'm the author of the commentary, and I'll be your teacher for today. Uh, today is Wednesday, October 28th, 2015, and we're going to be studying week. This is we're going to be starting with week three of the study. So let's open with a word of prayer some liturgy, and then we'll get started. Let's pray. Avinu Malkinu, our Father, our King, Lord, I ask that you will be with us today as we embark on another study of this precious book of Galatians. We thank you, Father, for sending your Son to die on our behalf, for sending him into our lives, into our hearts, into our communities, into our families, Father, without the presence of your Son, without the reality of what he has done on the cross, it would not be worth it to embark on a study such as this. It would not be worth, really, uh, trying to press in. But because of your great love for us, we thank you, Father, that we can approach the throne boldly and that we can come with perfect assurance, knowing that we have been forgiven and that we are being empowered by the Ruach HaKodesh, by the Holy Spirit, to live sanctified lives unto you. Thank you, Lord, for drawing us close to you. Thank you for grafting us into Israel. Thank you for making us a part of the remnant. Thank you, Lord, for preserving the words of your Torah. Thank you, Father, for this opportunity to teach. I pray that you'll be with each and every student today as we look at the text, as we rediscover the truth afresh as we seek to put the words deep down in us so that we can be cleansed, so that we can be changed, so that we can go out and take the good news to those around us who have not yet heard. Help us to be about our Father's business. Thank you, Lord, for all these good things. We'll be careful to give you the praise and the glory. B'Shem Yeshua Mishachinu. In the name of Yeshua, Jesus, our Messiah. Amen. Okay, as I mentioned, this is week three of the Exegeting Galatians commentary. We're working from a, um, as of yet, updated 122-page written commentary that I produced. Um, I completed it just this year, 2015. You can download the entire written commentary 
if you go to my personal Torah teaching website at www.tetzetorah.com. That's T-E-T-Z-E-T-O-R-A-H.com, tetzetorah.com. From the home page, um, look along the very top in the global navigation section, and you'll see a link that says Galatians Commentary. Click on that, scroll down to the page, and you'll be able to find the Galatians uh, teaching there. I'm producing this particular class, this live Galatians internet teaching, uh, in an effort to share my updated, updated resources with you and also to um, produce a brand new iTunes podcast. So some of you are, are aware, some of you may not know, that these audio recordings get um, uh, edited and then uploaded to iTunes later on. So uh, those of you who are subscribed to my weekly Messianic newsletter will also be able to receive uh, the notes from this teaching, and you'll also be able to receive uh, information about podcasts and things like that. If you're not subscribed to my weekly Messianic newsletter, it's free, and in that newsletter, basically, I use it as a medium to... um, to uh, forward or produce or send out uh, the notes from the weekly tour portions. But among other things, I also send out questions and answers that I field from different websites, and I send out notes for the Galatians note, uh, the Galatians class. So I hope you can sign up. You can also access the weekly Messianic newsletter subscription right from my TateSayTorah.com website, just from the homepage. Um, scroll down through the different sections, and down near the very bottom, you'll see the newsletter link. Just click on that and follow the instructions. Provide your name and your email address, and I'll be more than happy to add you to the weekly Messianic newsletter. Okay, let's get started with a little bit of liturgy. Um, My liturgy selection is going to be short, but it's going to be somewhat unique. Uh, We've got a lot to talk about today, and so I want to just jump right into the liturgy and then jump right into the commentary, okay? Uh, for this liturgy selection, as you know, I'm fond of reading liturgy before I do Torah studies. For this particular section, uh, I want to read a Hebrew passage, and, I'm, and then I'm going to read a passage out of the Greek, as I've been um, doing lately. But for the Hebrew passage, it's actually going to be a Hebrew passage of the Greek. You're saying, what? Okay, let me explain. I want to read a passage out of the New Testament but I want to read it in Hebrew. Most of you know that the New Testament was originally written in Greek. That is, the Greek manuscripts are the only sources that have survived, so we don't have any reason to believe that it was originally written in Hebrew, even if the speakers were Hebrew and Aramaic speakers, such as Yeshua and the Apostles and Paul, etc. Nevertheless, what God has preserved for us is the Greek. But that doesn't stop people from translating the Greek back over into Hebrew. It's modern Hebrew, it's not biblical Hebrew, but um, it's going to sound the exact same. So I want to read a verse for you in Hebrew. I'm not going to tell you what verse it is. I'll read it for you in Hebrew, and then I'll go back and read the English translation. And I hope this will bless you, okay? Here is, I'll read the Hebrew first, then I'll read the English, and then when I get the Greek selection, I'll do the same thing. I'll just read the Greek, and then I'll just read the English translation, okay? Here's the Hebrew. Avinu Shebashamayim. Yit Gadesh Shimcha Tavu Malchutecha 
יעשה רצונך. בארץ כאשר נעשה ושמיים. תן לנו היום לכם חוקנו, וסלח לנו את אשמתנו. כאשר סולחים אנחנו לאשר אשמו לנו. ואל תביאנו לידי מסע, כי אם הצליענו מן הרע. כי לך הממלכה והגבירה והתפארת לעולמי עולמים. אמן. Here's the English translation. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Of course, most of you recognize that familiar passage. That's Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 13, is rendered out of the beloved KJV. All right, that's the Hebrew liturgy. Let's turn to some Greek. I'm going to read a verse, and then I'm going to go back and read the English translation, okay? Here's the Greek. Idotis de hati u tikaiutai. Anthropos ex ergo namu, in me dia pistios, Christu Jesu, kai hemes ais Christon Jesun, epistusamen hina tikaiothomen, ek pistias Christu, kai uk ex ergo namu, hati ex ergo namu u tikaiothesetai, pasa Sarks. Let's read the translation. Yet we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. That's Galatians 2.16, as rendered from the ESV. All right. Um, I want to give just a brief overview of what we've covered so far in this commentary to exegeting Galatians. And uh, as always, if you've missed a previous live class, if your schedule doesn't permit you to join us here on Tuesday evenings or Wednesday mornings, if you happen to live on my side of the world in Korea, then you can always go to uh, my website, teitseitora.com, click on the Galatians commentary link from the very top, and right near the top of the page, there is a link to the live class information. Click on that link, and it'll bring up the live class page notes, or the live class page info, and right there you should see information about the audio recordings that we've already made here. That way you can listen to um, a, a class that you might have missed. <clears throat> so what I want to do is um, just kind of tell you where we've been going with the study so far. We're really still in the preface, and the preface is 10 questions long. 
we covered the intro, and then which was very short, and then we moved into the preface, which is these ten persistent or uh, ten common questions regarding Torah observance for Gentile questions, uh, Gentile Christians. Let's try that again. The preface is entitled Ten Common Questions Regarding Torah Observance for Gentile Christians. And the preface is really, uh, it covers two purposes. Number one, it's a preface to the Galatians material because of the common objections within standard Christian theology regarding uh, the book of Galatians, the interpretation of the book of Galatians, particularly Paul's um, Paul's instructions to us to either stop living according to Torah or to continue living according to Torah. Obviously, both of these views cannot be correct because they are diametrically opposed. You all know that my position is that I believe Paul wrote the book of Galatians to not warn us to stop keeping the keeping the Torah, but rather to inform us on the dangers of the legalism that permeated the first century Judaisms of his day, and the dangers that the Gentile Christians who were being grafted into Israel, the dangers that they were facing as they encountered the legalistic perversions uh, that were present in the first century Judaisms. And you all know that standard Christian theology today essentially believes or promotes the idea that Paul was warning the Gentile Christians away from falling into the trap of legalistic Judaism or uh, Torah Judaism or falling into Torah observance. In a word, Paul's basically telling the Christians to um, that they don't have to keep the law anymore, that they're no longer under the law, that uh, they're no longer have to uh, concern themselves with Sabbaths, circumcision, dietary restrictions, things like that. So, in these ten common questions, I am addressing common Christian objections to my position. And this, hopefully, will pave the way towards better dialogue between the two groups, and the groups that I'm imagining are Gentile Christianity on one hand, and Messianic Judaism, on the other hand, and these two groups are both Christians. These two groups are both believers. So this is really an in-house debate. It's not a debate over whether or not Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. It's not a debate on how to become saved. It's not a debate in that category. It's really a debate on the position of Torah in the life of a believer in Messiah. It's, it's primarily that type of debate. So the preface serves the purpose of whetting our appetite for this this ongoing Jewish and Christian dialogue over the place of Torah in the life of Jews and Gentiles in Messiah. But the preface is also basically its own standalone Bible study. You could really take these 10 questions and teach your own study on them because they, they don't really have to be linked to my Galatians notes. I just happen to link them to them because Galatians has become a popular book and the, the verses out of Galatians have become popular verses to turn to when either one of these two well-meaning camps are trying to argue for their position. Christians typically turn to the book of Galatians when they want to prove that Paul no longer expected Gentile Christians to keep Torah. And conversely, Messianic Jews, such as myself, will also turn to the book of Galatians in order to prove our position that Paul actually did encourage Christians to keep Torah, but to be careful of the other dangers. So, in week one, 
we looked at the introduction and we started moving through the 10 questions. We covered question one, which is what is Torah? And we covered question two, which is to whom was Torah given and who's required to follow it? Download the podcast or go to my website and listen to the audio. Each class is about an hour long. Listen to the uh, recordings there so that you can get caught up if you missed a class. In week two, we continued through the preface and we covered question three and question four. Question three was, didn't Yeshua fulfill the law and nail it to the cross? And question four was, doesn't Paul teach in many locations that we're free from the law? Those were the two questions we covered in week two. Now here we are at week three, and we're poised to continue in the preface section. And we're going to cover two questions today. The first question, question number five, is going to be, Paul says in Romans 6.14 that we're not under the law, but under grace. That's question number five. And then question number six is, Paul says we are not saved by works of the law. Explain. That's question number six. We're going to cover both of those questions today. So, if you look at your screen, if you're actually here in the live class with me today, then if you look at your screen, screen question number five, Paul says in Romans 6.14 that we're not under the law, but under grace. Um, these, these concepts of free from the law and not under the law, in, in standard Christian parlance, I have come to discover that um, they are mirror terms, mirror concepts. Paul uses the phrase under the law in many of his in many of his letters. But he also uses this concept of free from the law or free from something, right? Free from bondage, yes. Free from legalism, yes. Free from condemnation, yes. But free from the law? Mm, not really. I don't think so. Free from the perversion of Torah? Oh, absolutely. We're free from that. But I don't think we're free from the law. For more on that free from the law concept, uh, uh, get last week's audio. Listen to that uh, class. But let's pick up today's discussion with question five. Romans 6.14 is not in the book of Galatians, obviously, but the phrase under the law is, if you recall from my reading of the, of the um, Galatians um, verse that I just read. Let me go back and pull it up again here. Uh, Galatians 2.16, we know that a person is not justified by what? By the works of the law. Um, I apologize. Works of the law? We haven't gotten to that yet. We're going to get to that a little later on into, this, uh, into these uh, 10 common questions. But under the law, under the law. Let's stick with under the law for now. Now, it, oddly enough, when I go and visit standard Christian churches, when I dialogue with well-meaning Christian friends and family members, those who do not hold and share my opinions about Torah obedience for, for Christians, I often find that the phrase under the law and works of the law essentially are synonymous terms in Christian usage. Here's what I mean. Your average pastor will tell you that we're not under the law, and what he means by we're not under the law is we are not obligated to keep the Torah, meaning we're not obligated to follow the Sabbath, follow the dietary restrictions, uh, wear seat seat, uh, keep a mezuzah, keep a kosher home, uh, put a mezuzah on our door, uh, keep the festivals, etc., etc. That's what traditional Christianity uh, means when they when they say we're not under the law. They mean we're not under obligation to keep the Torah. That's what under the law means to them. And 
Um, it seems to me that when they use the phrase works of law, like I read in the Galatians passage, they feel that works of law are Torah obedience or works done in obedience to the Torah, if I were to stretch out the phrase works of the law. Uh, standard Christianity interprets the phrase works of the law as works done in obedience to the law. In essence, Torah obedience all over again. So to say that we're not under the law means we don't have to do the works of the law. That's what traditional Christianity says in regards to these particular phrases, under law and works of law. However, I have found in contradistinction to the traditional Christian views of these two phrases, I have found that if you actually go back and dig a little bit deeper into the historical, social, religious, contextual background of the Judaisms of Paul's day, and corroborate your research against not only the text itself, but corroborate it against the historical documents that have survived the destruction of the temple in 70 AE, um, i.e. the Talmudic text, the rabbinic texts, the Mishnah, the Gemara, uh, and, and etc., those types of literatures. In a word, the rabbinic sayings the, the, that were being circulated during Paul's day that were later codified uh, the, the, in the few hundred centuries after the destruction of the temple. I understand that not all of the rabbinic writings can be trusted as far as the accuracy. That, that's, that's a given. Any ancient document is going to fall under intense scrutiny uh, given, um, given difficulties regarding placing its exact dating and authorship and redaction. Uh, that is the editing of the text, you know, how much of it was actually, how much of it is still authentic. Um, we're, we're got, we have to deal with fragmentation when we talk about ancient texts, uh, such as the Dead Sea Scrolls and things like that. So I understand that there must be reservation when you are using ancient texts, not the Bible, of course, but ancient extra-biblical texts as your resources. I understand that. As a scholar, I understand that. Uh, however, um, if we are to do our due diligence when we are seeking to uncover the proper meanings of sayings of Paul, then it's better if we use the scientific approach where we put all the data on the table. And all of the data would include not only the, the text themselves, meaning the Greek manuscripts and, and the, um, the sayings, that have been preserved uh, from the patristic writings, meaning the early church fathers. That is part of the scientific research. But also on the table, we must put the rabbinic materials, because they are old. They're old. They're ancient. They're early. Uh, we must put the Qumran writings on the table for examination as well, because they are early. And quite possibly, they are extant. Um, that is to say, they were in existence at the same time that Paul was penning his words. So what it helps us to do is to get back into the mind of the first century um, religious society to help rediscover what the pattern of religious life was like in ancient Judaism that day. And that's the only way for us to begin to unlock the meanings behind some of these phrases, behind some of the colloquialisms, behind some of the clever rhetoric that Paul uses in his writings, right? That's really the best approach. We cannot simply open our 
traditional, um, our translations today, our modern translations, and read them in English, if that's our native tongue, and then say, well, here's what it seems like it means to me. Therefore, this is what I think the text means. That's, that's not the best way to approach the scriptures. The best way is to read the text, do our, our structural analysis, our historical grammatical research, our scientific approach, as it were, um, and then try to discover what did the text mean to them first. What did the text mean to the readers, the recipients, the original first recipients of the text? What did it mean to them? And then once we figure out what it meant to them, then we come along and try and figure out what it means to us. Obviously, we bathe the entire process in prayer, dependency on God, dependency on His Spirit, right? And then we just continue to become lifelong students of the text, and that's going to yield the best results, the most accurate results, and even then, even then, after all of that, we have to humble ourselves and come to the realization that no one has all the answers. No one has a corner, no one has what we say, a corner on the market of truth, or however the saying goes. No one has a corner, star, a corner store on the market of truth. No one has all the answers. We have to rely on one another, and all we can do is say that this seems to be the best view, or this seems to be a better way to approach the text and then we just continue to study because year after year as we grow, then we're going to discover more and more accurate ways to read the text, especially as we're continuing to avail ourselves not only of the Word of God, the Spirit of God, but also of the shared resources of the people of God. So you have to, you have to immerse yourself not only in the text, but you have to immerse yourself in lots of different commentaries including commentaries with that you agree with and commentaries that you disagree with so that you can get a balanced perspective on what the text is saying. Having said all of that as my introduction to this week's teaching, let's jump into question five. Romans 6.14 basically says we're not under the law but under grace. Let me bring up Romans 6.14 on my online Bible here real quick so that we can just get a running start. Romans 6. And 14 out of the ESV reads, For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law but under grace. I could just as easily include Romans 6.15 because it says, What then? Are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? By no means. End quote. Okay, so under law in prevailing Christian understanding means under obligation to keep the Torah. But does, is that really what Paul means when he says under law? Let's read the answer. The difficulty in correctly interpreting Paul is in understanding that his uses of the word law in many of his letters applies the definition from the context, which means the root Greek word used for law, which is namos, can apply to a variety of definitions. Paul's not under law phrase. Okay, let me pause here. Let me not read the second sentence for a moment. The import of understanding the use of the Greek word namos for law in our translations is in understanding that in Paul's day, law, in the Judaisms of his day, law can refer either to Torah proper, first five books of Moses. Law can also refer to rabbinic law or rabbinic bylaws, halacha, as we would call them in today. Rabbinic traditions, which would be takanot, or something to that effect. 
or law could also refer to Greek law, it could refer to Roman law, because it's the same word, right? It could refer to God's moral law, it could refer to universal law. So when we're reading through the text in English and we encounter the word law, and then we do our uh, lookup in the Greek, and we find out that the underlying word for law is often namos, as its root word, uh, as the original word, then we, ha we have to apply the meaning of the word law from the context of the passage, of the chapter, of the book, of the writer, of the social setting, etc. Context is king. So, now let's continue reading my commentary. Paul's not under law phrase, in this particular example in, from Romans 6.14, is preceded by, quote, for sin shall not have dominion over you, end quote. Go back and read the verse. Romans 6.14 reads, quote, For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law but under grace. So, in this particular verse of Romans 6.14, we find that law does not mean we are not under obligation to Torah commands. That's not what Paul's trying to convey in his passage. Rather, it most naturally functions in this verse, in Romans 6.14, as shorthand for, quote, not under the bondage of sin, and therefore under... Um, let me read that sentence again. Rather, it most naturally functions in this verse as shorthand for not under the bondage of sin, and therefore under the condemnation of the law. End quote. And this particular condemnation, by the way, is a just condemnation because it's reserved for unrepentant sinners. So, let's parse that concept for a moment. Let's dwell on that just for a split second. When Paul says we're not under the law in Romans 6, the whole context of the chapter is dealing with bondage to sin, slavery to sin, bondage to our old flesh, and therefore under the condemnation that's, uh, I'm sorry, therefore, um, yes, within the view of God's condemnation reserved for unrepentant sinners, those who have not yet surrendered their lives to Yeshua, those who are still living according to the flesh, those who, whether they want to or not, walk according to the flesh and deny and denounce and disobey God's ways. Those people ultimately are going to be condemned. Those people are ultimately going to be pronounced um, dead in trespasses and sin, and therefore God is going to have to condemn them. At the end of their life, if they fail to accept Yeshua, if they fail to get saved, then they're going to hell. If I can just state it plainly without offending anyone, right? So, under the law, in that passage, is Paul's way of saying we're not under the condemnation of the law. That's why I say it's kind of shorthand. That's what under the law means in those passages. And if we actually look up under the law in other passages, quite often... Paul is conveying the same idea. We're not under the condemnation of the law. To be sure, Romans 8 verse 1 goes on to say, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's Paul explaining this whole concept of we're not under condemnation. We're not under the law. We're not under the penalty of the law. We're not under the weight of the condemnation reserved for unrepentant sinners. And the reason we're not is because we've been set free. In Messiah. We're under grace. That's what he means. We're not under the law. We're under grace. He doesn't mean we're not under obligation to keep the law. That would be that would be importing a meaning into the passage where the meaning was not implied by the passage. We call that eisegesis. And that's not the best way to interpret scripture. You don't want to put your own meaning into the passage. 
You rather want to read the passage and take out the meaning that is there. You want to exegete what the meaning is. That's why my commentary is called exegeting Galatians. Exegeting means to take out ex. The first part of exegeting, the ex part, means to take out from the Greek word ex or ek, to come out of. So when we exegete a passage, we read the passage, and we glean, we take out the meaning from the passage, and then we are able to apply the passage because we have, we've applied the passage from context. All right, so uh, let me finish this answer, and then I'll move on to question six because it's easily going to be the longest part of this study today. So in closing for this particular answer, number five, the reason we're not under the condemnation of the law in other words, the reason we're not under law, is because we're not under bondage. And the reason we're not under bondage is because we've been set free and are under the grace of Yeshua's blood. Amen? Amen. All right, so the next time you're having a discussion with your well-meaning friends, family members, pastor who disagree with you keeping Torah, and they remind you that we're not under the law, then you remind them that yes, we're not under the law, but under the law means we're not under the condemnation of the law. We're not under the condemnation and the penalty of the law. We're not under the bondage of sin, under the bondage of shame, under the bondage of the flesh. That's what under the law really means in most of the passages. There are a few exceptions. There are like one or two passages, but I don't have time to develop that in this particular setting today. If you have questions about this particular topic under the law, shoot me an email. You can email me at grafted.in. I'm sorry, you can email me at yeshua613 at hotmail.com or just go to my website, graftedin.com or tatesatorah.com. Click on any one of my Torah commentaries, scroll down to the very bottom of the PDF page, and you'll find my email address. Go ahead and shoot me an email there. All right, let's move on. Question number six. This is going to be the longest question and topic that we're going to talk about. And if we don't finish in the, last, in the next 20 minutes, which is all I have time for for this particular life study, then we'll just pick up this particular question again next week and keep going with it. All right? I don't want to rush anyone. I want to go slow and deliberately and take the time to develop the concepts so that we can get them in our minds, so that we can dwell on them, so that we can uh, apply them to our personal lives. Okay? That's the goal of Torah study. Not to go fast, but to be thorough. All right, question six. Paul says, we are not saved by works of the law. Please explain. All right, works of the law is a, um, it is a familiar concept. That's why I read the Galatians 2.16 passage. Quote, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of law, because by works of law no one be just no one will be justified. End quote. Okay, let's begin to read the answer here. This will easily be the longest answer of the set because it will develop one of the core hermeneutic keys to historically understanding Paul's letters. Works of the law, the Greek is ergon namu, works, law, is one of the most challenging statements of Paul when read outside of the context of Paul's first century Jewish worldview. All right, let me pause for a moment and say, I'm going to continue to keep stressing, stressing that you must 
look to the context of Paul's first century Judaism as best as you can. I understand that the majority of Christian commentaries are going to say that Paul's Judaism, the Judaisms of Paul's day, believed that if they kept the Torah perfectly, that God would save them. And therefore, Paul had to explain or correct that theology. Paul had to explain to them that it's not by keeping the Torah that will save you, it's by faith in Jesus Christ that will save you. All right. Okay. With that as our setup, as, as our primer, let's continue reading my answer. On the one hand, on the one hand, mere mechanical law-keeping will never save anyone. Right? nor will sincere law-keeping for that matter. This is true. This is true. Let me read that sentence again. It is true that mere mechanical law-keeping, nor sincere law-keeping, will save anyone. Mere mechanical law-keeping will never save anyone, nor will sincere law-keeping save anyone. Law-keeping, period, will not save you. The law is not a salvific document. It was not given for the purpose of saving a person. However... It is a wonderful sanctification tool when used by the Holy Spirit. You would have to agree, right? The law is used by God himself to sanctify, to showcase sin, to highlight sin, to, to pinpoint sin in the life of a, man, of a believer or an unbeliever. It doesn't matter. The, the law is God's standard of righteousness, and therefore God can and does use the law to show sinners what sin is and also to show righteous people that is to say, saved people, what sin is, right? Paul says in Romans 7, I would not have known covetousness if it were not for the law. Well, Paul's a believer. He can say that as an unbeliever and as a believer. The Torah defines sin. So, it's a great sanctification tool. Let's keep reading. And it is a tool used to highlight and convict both regenerate and unregenerate men of sin. So, on the theological level, it is true that keeping the law does not save us. In fact, keeping the Torah has never saved anyone. Right? We know that's true. So, if your pastor says, Hey, if you read Paul and you understand that he's teaching that you can't keep the law to be saved, but that you have to believe in Jesus Christ to be saved, that's a good way to understand Paul. If your pastor tells you that, well then, applaud the theological truth that he just made. Because theologically, it is a truthful statement to teach that the law cannot save you and that you can only be saved by faith in Jesus Christ. Amen, amen. A thousand times, amen. However, let's go back to context. Let's go back to history. Let's go back to the social setting of which Paul wrote. The standard Christian theological discussions, as I continue reading in my commentary, the standard Christian theological discussions on law versus grace, grace often fail to grasp Paul's 2,000-year-old uh, historical and sociological discussions about group membership and what this meant to many first-century Jews. Let me explain. In Paul's day, Israel sincerely, albeit incorrectly, believed that group affiliation is what mattered most in terms of corporate salvation, both in this life and in the life to come after one died. What I mean is, belonging to, that is, getting in and staying in, the family clan, belonging to the family clan of Israel, was the most important detail 
that an average individual Jew, that an average individual person could focus on. That was their worldview. Jews both then and now refer to the social policies that govern Jewish life as halakha. That's what they call it, halakha. Basically, halakha is group policy or bylaws or tradition or um, uh, halakha is Jewish law. Basically, today, if you ask your if you ask a religious Jew what's halakha or halakha, as they might say, it's Jewish law. But essentially, it's Jewish policy, right? Governing uh, social po social policies that govern Jewish life. This is halakha. It's a Hebrew word that refers to the way in which to individually or corporately walk out Torah in a practical manner. That's the kind of the root word, uh, the root meaning to halakha. All right. Let's continue reading in my commentary. Let me scroll down a bit here. All right. Now that we understand or have been introduced to this concept of halakha, let's continue reading. The Torah has built-in God-given halakha. That's true. It has built-in halakha, built-in policies, built-in bylaws, built-in traditions from the text, as it were. And God put them there. But most often, it was the additional responsibility of Jewish leaders to determine specific group policy, etc., where the Torah was silent in some matters. I'll give you an example. Uh, the Torah repeatedly tells us to sanctify the Sabbath or to remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. We read that out of the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Question. Question for all you brilliant Torah students out there. Exactly what does it mean to sanctify the Sabbath? What does it mean to make it holy? You say, well, it means not to work on the Sabbath. Okay, granted, that's true, because we we're given that definition in Exodus chapter 31, and we see it demonstrated later on in the prophets uh, when they uh, rebuke the people for working on the Sabbath. Okay, true. Abstaining from work is how we sanctify the Sabbath. But what else is there? What else is involved? Would, say, turning off my TV constitute sanctifying the Sabbath? Most of you would say yes, but where's that in the text? I don't read anything in the text that tells me to turn off my TV. You say, well, Ariel, that's ridiculous. There were no TVs around. Ah, true. However, the point I'm trying to make is there are numerous ways to sanctify the Sabbath that are not listed in the text. Wouldn't you agree? How do we determine these different ways of sanctifying the Sabbath? How does your congregation determine what it means to sanctify the Sabbath? How many of you out there attend Messianic congregations, and in your Messianic congregations, you don't go shopping on the Sabbath? You don't fill up your car tank with gas on the Sabbath? How many of you do those things? Raise your hand. Yeah, I see those hands. Well, where in the text does it say you have to stop shopping on the Sabbath? You say, well, shopping constitutes work. And the Torah says, don't work on the Sabbath, therefore I don't shop because that constitutes work. Ah, but the text doesn't say anything about not shopping, at least not in the Exodus passages. Later on in, say, the later prophets, I think it's in Jeremiah, and we have another instance in um, Zechariah, I believe. Um, we have instances where the prophet rebukes the people for buying and selling on Sabbath. Yes, we see that developed later on because that becomes a tradition. It becomes a part of the halakha of the community that's seeking to observe the commandment that says, don't work on the Sabbath. So that's what I mean by the Torah has built in God-given halakha. So before I get off point too far, too far, let me come back to the text. Let's pick up the reading. 
in their segregated way of thinking, the Jewish communities of Paul's day, in their segregated way of thinking, all of covenant Israel was comprised of Jewish people only, viz. everyone in Israel was a Jew. Now that's important to remember. It's important to recall. It's important to actualize. They thought that everyone in Israel was a Jew. In other words, they defined Israel as Jewish-only Israel. This means, as I keep reading, if a non-Jew wanted to attain corporate salvation, both now and after they died, that person, that Gentile, needed to legally convert to become a Jew first and thus join Jewish Israel. Okay? If a Gentile wanted to join Israel, they had to go through a conversion policy in Paul's day, and when they came out the other end of this conversion policy, they were a Jew. They were a legally recognized Jew by the Jewish community. And as a legally recognized Jew, then they took their place in physical covenant Israel. So, let's keep reading. Once they were legally recognized as Jewish, their place in the physical covenant was ostensibly maintained by keeping the Torah. Okay, let's stop there for a moment. And at 10 minutes left in the class, I think I'm going to break this question off right here and pick it up again later on uh, next week. But I want to just make sure that we understand where I'm going with this particular question. The question was, doesn't Paul say we're not under the law and we're not saved by the works of the law? And standard Christian theology defines works of the law as Torah obedience. And when they read through Paul, they see Paul saying, it's by the works of the law that no one will be saved. It's by faith in Jesus that every man can be saved. And the answer that I'm developing here is that by context, if we go back and, say, corroborate our historical research of the first century Judaisms, if we compare our studies of the text against, say, the surviving rabbinic literature, if they are any indication of what the pattern of religious life was like in ancient Israel, then what we're going to find is that ancient Judaism of the first century didn't use the phrase works of the law the way that we use it today in standard Christian parlance. In other words, they didn't see keeping the Torah as a means towards salvation. What I'm describing is merit theology. Merit theology in today's uh, understanding. Merit theology is basically is the um, flawed concept that if you do XYZ, the deity will accept you and allow you into the kingdom. If you keep uh, commandments 1 through 10, then God will accept you into heaven. That is merit theology. Merit theology supposes that you can work your way into heaven. And in the limited view that Christianity has, sees the first century Judaism, they see the Judaisms of Paul's day keeping Torah in this manner. They see the Judaisms of Paul's day walking into Torah obedience because the Judaisms of Paul's day ostensibly believe that if they keep the Torah perfectly, that God will save them. That is merit theology. Now, theologically, we know that's unsound. We know it's unscriptural. We know that no one can work their way into heaven. We know that you cannot keep the Torah perfectly so that God would 
um, God would reward you with salvation. We know that that's impossible. However, as I'm developing the answer to question number six about works of the law, what we're going to find out is that Paul's phrase, works of the law, does not mean and doesn't have to mean, it doesn't have to imply Torah obedience, works of law, even though it sounds like it, right? I mean, it sounds so easy. Works of the law, right, of course, naturally, Ariel. Works of the law means doing works in obedience to the law, working towards keeping the law, works of obedience in the law. Yes, I know in, in, in modern ways of thinking, in, in what we might call a common sense way of reading the scripture at face value or first blush. It simply sounds like Paul saying that if you try to keep the Torah to be saved, that it's going to fail. Only faith in Jesus will save you. And here's where I have to be very, very, um, very pertinent in my explanation. Yes, theologically, it is true that you cannot keep Torah to save you. However, what I'm trying to stress is that that's not Paul's argument. That's not his historical argument. In other words, Paul wouldn't, wouldn't have to argue from that position because the first century Judaisms didn't hold that view. They didn't think that way, is what I'm trying to say. And the reason I believe that this is true meaning that they didn't think this way, is because uh, for two primary reasons. One, if you actually go through and read the Torah, starting in the book of Genesis, well, if you want to just get to the law parts, you can actually start in the middle of the book of Exodus. Say, start with Exodus 20 and start working your way forward till you get through Deuteronomy. So, um, Exodus 20 and the rest you know, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, read through the commandments that God gave to Israel. You know, the thou shalt and thou shalt nots. Read those. And read them with the idea, with the, with the supposition, that God is presenting the possibility that if you do all of these things, like a grocery list or what we might call a list checking, um, Read them and imagine that God was giving them to Israel so that if they kept them perfectly, that God would reward them with salvation. I'm here to tell you people that if you read through the Torah that way, you'll find that it doesn't read that way. It doesn't make sense practically. It's not logistically possible to read the Torah and come away with the understanding that, hey, this is a grocery list. This is list checking. This is, this is a, 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 an, um, a recipe for salvation. If I just do... If, if I follow step one and continue all the way through step 10, meaning if I keep all the commandments, and if I do them perfectly, God will reward me with salvation. If you read through the Torah practically, you'll, you'll begin to realize that not all of the commandments are for every single Israelite. There are commandments for men. There are commandments for women. There are commandments for priests. There are commandments for kings. So what do you do if you're a man and you encounter the commandment for women? Well, you can't keep it. Well, if the ostensible standard is that if you keep all of them, God will reward you with heaven, well, then doesn't that mean that God is setting up an impossible standard? And it's impossible not because someone can't do it because they're trying. It's impossible that it's impossible because no one, it's impossible because it doesn't apply to everyone. 
That's the point I'm trying to make. And yet we also find God warning Israel over and over again that if you don't keep them, I'll punish you for your disobedience. So now we have a God who not only sets up an impossible standard, but you also have a God who punishes those who try and fail. That, in my opinion, is a sadistic God, and that's not the God we serve. So it's not a best practice to read through the Torah with the supposition that it is a grocery list given, a recipe for attaining to salvation. And so because you can't read the Torah that way, why would Paul have to warn someone about reading the Torah that way and coming away with that understanding? Do you see my point? Paul doesn't have to warn the Judaisms of his day, hey, if you try to keep the Torah for salvation, it's going to fail. Paul doesn't have to warn them about that because they weren't thinking that. And the reason they weren't thinking that is because they were reading the Torah, walking it out with the understanding that these parts apply to me, these parts apply to my neighbor. These parts apply to the priests. These parts apply to the kings. And no one can keep all of it. Rather, we all keep it corporately as a community. Together we keep it and walk it out. And we walk it out as it is applicable to us. And we walk it out as it is historically available uh, to walk it out, meaning there are parts of the Torah that are disposable. They have one-time use, such as, for instance, the commandments given to build the tabernacle. Well, once they built the tabernacle, they don't have to keep those commands anymore. Makes sense, right? Or the commandment to circumcise a baby boy on the eighth day. Once he gets circumcised, you don't have to keep the, you don't have to keep circumcising him over and over again. It's my point. As opposed to say the commandment to worship on the Sabbath day, well, you do that every week. The commandment to um, wear seat seat, well, you do that as often as you can wear them. The commandment to say um, bring the sacrifices on Yom Kippur, well, you do that annually every time Yom Kippur falls on the calendar. Calendar. So you see my point. So as we're gonna work through. The answer to question number six about unlocking this, the meaning of the phrase works of the law. In a word, what we're going to find is that works of the law doesn't mean keeping the law. Works of the law does not necessarily mean walking in line with the Torah. We're going to find that it means something similar but different. And we'll save that for next week because this is a very long answer. So, with that, it is the end of the study. Let me go ahead and do a general dismissal. And then for those of you who want to stay for the 15-minute Q&A afterwards, uh, the live chat feature, you're welcome to stay. Uh, but for those of you who were not attending the live class, uh, the general dismissal will end the audio recording, and that'll be it. I do not record the um, Q&A session. That's a special treat only for those who attend the live class, okay? Let me close in prayer, and then I'll open up the chat. Avinu, Malkenu, our Father, our King, Lord, we thank you that you are with us today, that your Spirit was here today, that Ruach HaKodesh has opened our eyes to see Yeshua, to see the Messiah, to see our Savior in the text. We thank you that you have opened our eyes, Lord, to understand that we are your children, that we can cry, Abba, Father, that your Spirit bears witness with our spirit. Thank you, Lord, for bringing us into the family. Thank you, Lord, for the study today. 
I bless each and every student who came out today. I pray that you will continue to bless them and lift them up. I pray for them every week that you will open their eyes as they study the text, that you'll open my eyes as the teacher as I prepare for the lessons. I pray that you'll put the words of your Torah, the words of your truths deep down into our hearts so that we can walk them out, so that we can be pleasing to you, Yeshua, so that we can be a light to those around us, so that we can be bold in our witness as we seek to share the good news with those around us who don't yet know. Thank you, Lord, for this great salvation. Bless you for all these good things. Bring us back ready, willing to study next week with our hearts burning for the truth of the scriptures. Thank you for all these good things, B'Shem Yeshua. Amen. That concludes our show for today. It is my desire that this continuing series of teachings will assist the average non-Jewish believer or new Messianic Jewish believer in his desire to become a more mature child of God. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your forefathers and loved them. And he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. Because the Torah is written on the hearts of all who truly name the name of Yeshua as Lord and Savior, it is meant to be followed to the best of our ability. We have no reason for fear of condemnation or the trappings of legalism. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. The intro and outro song were written, produced, and performed by Ryan Kingsley. For more information on contacting Ryan, you can reach me by email at yeshua613 at hotmail.com. That's Y-E-S-H-U-A number 613 at hotmail.com. Or visit our website at graftedin.com. That's graftedin.com. <laughs>